This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Monday, April 29th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, on The Gist, I try to be intellectually and ideologically consistent, and sometimes there are events which doesn't or don't fit my thesis. An event like that, some parts of it fit the thesis, some parts didn't, was when there was this tragic shooting in San Diego a couple of days ago. Now, on the show, I have always said that the AR-15s aren't necessarily to blame, but they seem to exacerbate the problem of school and workplace and public area shootings. How they do this is, I believe, twofold. One, the weapons themselves are rightly described as weapons of war. In war, they're used automatically, although often they're used semi-automatically because anyone who knows about munitions can tell you if you just hold down a trigger, you're going to get really, really indiscriminate fire. So yeah, they're really powerful and there's no reason to have them for a defense, fun, or killing an animal. The other way, I believe, that AR-15s are in some way tied into all these mass shootings is that they seem to attract the kind of person who would carry out a shooting like this. They seem to be a magnet for the people who would be so deranged as to try and to accomplish these mass shootings. Now, in the case of San Diego, it seems that the rifle misfired. And maybe it was the case that a person was so enamored by the AR-15 that the very technology thwarted his ultimate ambitions. So I am not one of these people who will tell you at every single time and with every single mass shooting that if it hadn't been an AR-15, fewer people would have died. This is the rare case where it seems because it was an AR-15 and because the shooter wasn't technically proficient, maybe fewer people in fact did die. So that is the area where I will try to be honest with you and call it as I see it. But there is another area that I think this shooting proves me correct on, which is I have always said that we should not credit the motivations of nut jobs. So when a person, as the shooter in New Zealand did and many shooters before him, when a person like that cites his ideology, it is so very tempting to say, see, the people who are behind this kind of thought are responsible. The leaders who don't do enough to dissuade any potential quote-unquote follower from carrying out some heinous acts. But you know, in San Diego, the shooter specifically blamed Donald Trump for not being anti-Semitic enough. So in this case, should we say Donald Trump is off the hook? I actually think that Donald Trump should not have been blamed for the Tree of Life shooting, should not have been blamed for any of the other shootings, should not have been blamed for the New Zealand shooting. Oh, of course, it is shameful and immoral that he doesn't do more in terms of policy and just in terms of the bully pulpit to try to speak out against these horrific killings. It is shameful. But I do not believe in giving so much credit to the ideology of a person who is so disturbed as to carry out these acts in the first place. It all seems very troubling and depressing and that there seems to be no answers with all these mass shootings. But I have been noticing one thing. 
I couldn't tell you. I'm not just saying the shooter because I know his name and I'm choosing not to tell you. I didn't do any research into it. I've always believed we shouldn't say the shooter's name. And the shooter's name in this case has really, really not been said that much. If you go back as recently as 2012 and the Sandy Hook shooting, I'm not going to say his name, but you probably remember what the name of that person was who killed all those kids in Connecticut. But since then, I do believe the media has done a lot to keep the names of these shooters out of the news. If you give me a list of people who perpetrated the Las Vegas killing and said, pick the right one, I probably could, but I couldn't tell you who that is off the top of my head. I probably could with Orlando, but the Sutherland Springs shooting, no idea who that person was. And the Parkland shooting, I probably could pick the name out, but top of the head, do you know the name of the shooter? I don't. And I think that is the media using their position as gatekeepers better than they used to. Here's the downside. Since the news media, the mainstream media, has become more responsible in terms of saying shooters' names, it's the exact moment when channels like 4chan and 8chan and Gab have risen to counteract that, which is one of the, I don't know if you want to say bright points, but one of the areas of society that seems to be doing a little bit better when it comes to the horrible problem of mass shootings. As far as the larger question... I just know this. Our society is ailing, and this seems to be how one sick part of it expresses itself. You could debate the vectors of contagion, but I just know that guns are the pathogen. And the analogy I would put out is this. It doesn't matter how many people in your herd who want the correct immunity. When you've got enough anti-vaxxers inside, then you remain vulnerable to the real disease. On the show today, I spiel about the many, many thoughts I had after watching The Avengers. I know the movie's still in theaters, but I just have to share my thoughts. I will do so in the spiel. I give away no specific plot developments, except really the biggest one. I'm going to have to tell you if everyone lives or everyone dies. It's really more of a do they stay dead or come back to life thing. That gets answered. If you don't want part of that, skip the spiel. But stick around for my guest... Josh Gondelman, one of the funniest comedians around, and he does it in a decidedly different way from the I'm going to die on stage or kill style that so many comedians have. He's a funny guy who dares to be sweet and vulnerable. He's also a top comedy writer, and he pioneered a fake Seinfeld Twitter account that is pretty much perfect. Josh Gondelman up next. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com josh gondelman is a wonderful empathetic person i just get this from listening to his cd's and his cassettes yeah he has he has albums out on cassette and albums out on album but the thing is if he wasn't even a wonderful and empathetic person 
he'd be a very funny person, and that would be enough. You know, it's like a, it's like a Passover type thing. So Josh Gondelman is here. He's a stand-up comedian. His newest, oh, do we call it an album? I call it, I mean, it's coming out on vinyl. Is that vinyl. saying Drop the Dime? Is that, you know, an old <laughs> reference to? But it is physically an album. It's not a, uh, you know, I, I think. This one's an album. Yeah, for real. Yeah. It's it's uh, 12-inch vinyl. Uh-huh. And the name is? Dancing on a Weeknight. Dancing on a Weeknight. Oh, so wistful. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sensitivity as regards family members, it's your personality comes through, which leads me to my first question. Not by fandom or by history, but would you acknowledge that you are the least typical Bostonian most people have met? <laughs> I get that frequently. Just by affect. Yeah, I definitely, <laughs> people assume I'm Canadian or Midwestern from meeting me and hearing me speak. And when I say, when I say, you know, I grew up in the Boston suburbs and lived in the city before I moved here, and uh, people are surprised. There's disbelief. Some people think I'm lying to them yeah. as a bit. But yeah, it's like I don't have a typically... Bostonian vibe. Right. And not just how you look or or sound. If we had a transcript of the things you said, we would be able to pick up very few Bostonianisms. I don't know. Maybe you call a water fountain a bubbler. I, I do. I do say bubbler. Uh, and <laughs> it's like I say it like it's all the accent like wants to come out too. Like, yeah. oh, yeah, let me just hit the bubbler before we go. <laughs> <laughs> how do you say scallops? I, I do. I, scallops. Yeah. Well, there yep. you go. That's Bostonian. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, there's a few. I mean, there's a few weird things that... I don't, I like, I'm still realizing are weird, like little uh, dialecty things. Like, I re- was talking yesterday with, at work with a couple friends and co workers, and uh, about how everyone in like middle school yearbooks signed it, signed the yearbooks, have a great summer, S U M M A H. Like, they spelled out the accent. And I, which like, I was just like, oh yeah, that's like a fun kid summer thing. And I'm like, no, that's like a New England thing right. exclusively. Yeah. As a New Yorker, I thought the word drawer was draw. Draw. I just thought it was draw. Yep. I did did not know. Literally did not know. For sure. Yeah. And there were a couple names like that. Like, there are still kids I went to high school whose names might, their their surnames might end in an R, and I couldn't tell you if the name was was Fina or Fina. Yep. There'd be no way. For sure. Yeah. So you're now writing for Jesus and Mero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been at Jesus and Mero since December. Oh, that's awesome. And your last show was John Oliver. Yeah, I worked at, at Last Week Tonight for five years. I would guess that at first Blanche, not similar demographics, but maybe I'm wrong. And also, as I was thinking about it, they both are they both have a lot of similarities in yeah. insofar as they love talking about the world as it is through their own prism and experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they also want to, both of them don't just want to let the audience laugh and get off the hook with a laugh. They do want to inform a little bit too, in I, their own way. I think that, yeah, I think that there are similarities for sure. And like you said, like they, it's hard to talk about a group of two and right. combined with a one other person. So, so all three of them, yes. yes, both entities really speak I think they they have a really unfiltered way of seeing of of expressing their comedy, right? Like a very very sincere and very thoughtful, but it's also yeah through the prism of who they are, where they're from, and you get a lot of them in the show. Yeah. Which I think is really wonderful. I think that's like a really special and exciting thing to have as a performer, let's say, and as a writer it's really helpful for the host to have that because like I know, you know, I can work within like, oh, this is a thing that would be very funny for John Oliver specifically to do. Or this is a thing that Jesus and Mero would really dig into in a very fun way because, you know, their point of view is so clear. 
On the Oliver Show, they'll take an often obscure topic and breathe life into it. And, and people say, how is that funny? I never, I never understood that question. Mm-hmm. Like when you're talking about, you know, poultry policy. Yeah. It's inherently funny and sure. it's unexplored mm-hmm. and what great, what a great topic. But did you pitch those topics? Did you have to th- put yourself in the mindset of those topics? And now that you're off a show like that, are you less oriented towards the real nitty gritty of policy, let's say? Yeah. I mean, like I just as my my media diet when I'm in the office is much different. Like Bossip is more of a resource than it was <laughs> at my old job. And I find myself like doing a lot less watching a frontline documentary while making notes and like gently weeping much less. so it's yeah it's like the the media diet at work is different and i i still you know i still try to be engaged with like nitty-gritty political stuff as a uh, a human being and a citizen but it just is let it it is less central to what the show does. So you're writing for the Showtime show, to be clear. To yes, the yes, 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 yes. So how does their uh, still ongoing excellent podcast interact with the Showtime show? Does it f- give it ideas, and how do they separate? Yeah, I, so, I mean, I think for them, they they want the styles to be different of the two things, and the show is, by virtue of being, like, a more visual enterprise, although there is video on the podcast, but, like, the the video has more production behind it. Yeah. I think there are things we could do on the show that we that they couldn't just do on the podcast, you know, sketches and and whatnot. And I think like listening to the podcast gives the whole staff like a really great insight into like, oh, this is what the guys have been talking about this week. And like maybe we can work this into a sketch or work this into you know, like if they if they talked about some, a piece of footage that they saw, or a, we would know, like, oh, let's like pitch stuff on on this story, yeah. and find an angle in. Um, it is yeah. nice. It's nicer than working for a host who's just giving you a stream of uh, his thoughts via text. You actually have this nice product, yeah. to know what their most polished and refined thoughts of the week have been so far. For sure, and it's. I mean, the podcast is so funny. It's yeah. like I before I even worked for them, I would listen and like laugh like on a plane and just unnerve the people near me on the the flight. And it's, they bring themselves to like every endeavor they do. So yeah. it's like, it's not like they go on TV and they're Jesus and Mero corporate. They're like the same guys as on the podcast, but they're, they're just like, th- there's more of a specific um, set of, things that they're looking at because it's a half hour TV show rather than like an hour and a half freewheeling podcast. So you are a different kind of comedian than most comedians in that you, I mean, the whole language of comedy, I'm not going to do the whole George Carlin bit is kill or be killed, right? Mm -hmm. You either kill or you bomb and it's very aggressive and it's the most, uh, a comedian can be quote unquote likable, but usually they're grabbing the audience by the throat and taking them with Mm -hmm. them. You're not. My question is, has there ever been a truly great comedian who's also been likable? Besides yeah. you. Oh, thank you. That's very <laughs> kind. I think there are lots of likable comedians. I think, like, just to start with, like, a Maria Bamford, who you root for when you watch for sure, who's, like, brilliant. Right. And and there's it's there's not an aggression coming from her. You know what I mean? I would even say, like, there's, like, someone like a, um, like John Mulaney as well, who's, like, one of the best working. And, um... Uh, like Roy Wood Jr. There's there's so many people that I think are likable. It's just I think what people key in on about my vibe is that it is very gentle. Yes. And 
friendly, yes. which is like friendly is a weird word. Friendly. That's yes. yeah. Maybe it's not likable. It's because yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, sweet. You're right. There are comedians who are sweet, and you you know that you think you know that this would be a good person to yeah. hang out with. But trying to be likable or not being afraid to be likable. And and I also think like as there are more places to see and do comedy, and you can find audiences that are that aren't just going like, oh, I'm good. You know, like maybe it was in the 80s and 90s where they said, okay, we'll go to the club and yep. we'll see who the comedians are and that, like, whatever it is, that's fine. Uh, and then you had to have more comedy that I think just hit everybody, yes. you know? Cut through, uh, dealing yeah. with hecklers. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of aggression yeah. to that. Probably also your the comedian's life was harder, so maybe it made them a little For more. For sure, a little more edge yeah. to that. And now, like, I think hopefully more different perspectives are being heard in comedy and that broadens audiences to what they're they're excited to hear willing to like entertain in terms of point of view and um and i think i think about that i think that's really wonderful and so you get someone like i mean ron funches is like incredibly sweet on stage and and, but his joke writing is so strong too it's not just that he's sweet that carries carries him over you know and it's still the killer be killed it's just like they're he's killing him softly as dave Chappelle called the special yes but i was thinking of him as being the opposite of what i'm saying which is that i i do think maybe it's among critics but there's still this conception that the guys who are the masters yeah the guys who will and mostly guys who will come out and in any crowd in any circumstance yeah. there is an aggression to them there's there is a killer instinct about them, but maybe there is. Yeah. There, but I think an aggression and a killer instinct is a different, is like a different thing, right? Yeah. Like I think you cannot feel aggressive to the audience, but like when I go out, I'm trying to kill, and I want to kill, and I like get, I get in my head, and I like, you know, if it's if I'm not killing right away, I'm like game planning how to right make make things different. It just it, the the way the style of it is different you know what i mean like i think like you know when you have you can shred with an electric guitar but like i'm sure people who play the flute are like i'm fucking shredding this flute right now <laughs> yeah the guy from jethro tall certainly yeah yeah your boat, for right? sure <laughs> so does, does that make sense it does um right you're just talking about the timbre of yes. the instrument might be different but you're still going a mile a minute and showing great virtuosity so okay i could ask this last question so the last thing i want to ask you about i'd love to have you back i'm a big fan thank you um your 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 first big comedy I don't know breakthrough but thing that mm-hmm. got noticed was the the Seinfeld yeah. Twitter account yeah the modern Seinfeld Twitter modern account. Seinfeld it's a great conceit it's extremely well executed but in real life in 2019 tell me that show wouldn't be like protested to the point like it's the most unwoke show in a way that would be very quote unquote problematic sure. or it's also you can look at it like it's done by such skilled people they'd get it and find a way to comment on the time. I think today. for sure they would find a way. Totally. There there are th- episodes of Seinfeld that like do not hold up in right. terms of like the politics, but I think some most comedy from the past there will be like an element of that. But I definitely think I mean like Larry David does it on Curb mm-hmm. and it holds up and like I I think you know Jerry Seinfeld has some personal crankiness about the sensitivities of audiences yeah but also on the show jerry seinfeld the character was not a guy who was like looking to piss people off you know what i mean like i think there are there's plenty of ways to navigate that show it's just like because so much of it is 
about the customs of the day you, and, and like the uh, like little niceties and etiquette yeah. questions. Yeah. And so I it's think it's like a trollop novel, yeah. but shorter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all that stuff is still happening, and there are ways to like poke at it and pull at it without being problematic for sure. Like, I mean, just answering machine problems become text message problems. Josh Gondelman's new album is Dancing on a Weeknight. It's where, you know, better albums are sold or downloaded yeah, or possibly, you know, pressed into a wax cylinder. Josh, great to meet you. Thank you. Great to meet you, too. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Hey, listener, you may have heard via your earbuds, car stereo, smart speaker, or immersive shower sound system that podcasts are the future. We at Slate think so, too, which is why we are hosting Slate Day in New York City on Saturday, June 8th. And it won't just be stuffy panels. Oh, but it'll be them, too. The day starts with a performance by Ms. Cracker of RuPaul's Drag Race fame. We've got pop culture trivia where you can join Slate's own writers. A play date for kids organized by our parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting and You Know Hit Parade, that podcast about the biggest hits in pop and music. They are going to have a dance party. Of course, we will have panels too, including mine, titled The Art of Podcasting with Mike Pesca. I'll be asking questions to the people who usually ask questions in this, the podcast industry. I can't wait for it. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. See you Saturday, June 8th. And now the spiel. So I just saw the Avengers movie. I think most people did if you look at the box office results. And I could back off and let you play catch up in case you want to see some of the plot developments. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to engage in a news report that could have happened right when the movie ended. So if you, if you want out, just say goodbye. Nice knowing you. Skip the spiel. But if you saw The Avengers and were wondering about the things I was wondering about, or even better, if you don't care about The Avengers, I think you might enjoy this. Now, if you haven't watched the movie, here's what you need to know. In the Avengers movie before this, the bad guy named Thanos snaps his fingers and half of the world turns to dust, half of the world's population. In this movie, I don't want to give so much away except to say the whole thing's reversed. There is a reverse snap, and all the people who turned to dust and floated away, they all come back. And I gotta say, the movie doesn't really deal with it on a very deep level. It's more like, yay, Spider-Man's back. So I was wondering what the rest of the world would look like if after five years, everyone who disappeared shows up again. I give you this. I'm Harley Scott. And I'm Scott Wilson. And this is the Harley Reid Hour News in Brief. Well, it was the Wilson Report. It says so on my contract. Your contract says that ended five years ago. I signed it last month. A month ago in your terms, five years ago, as I've been living on this earth. Well, the lawyers say it's a month ago. The entire legal team was snaptured. Of course, they're going to say that. Let's get to the news, shall we? The audience needs updates on the world. Very well. Today's top story, the housing glut goes to a massive housing shortage overnight. For the past five years, as the available housing stock doubled, real estate prices cratered along with the rest of the economy. 
Now homelessness is on the rise. Housing, probate, and civil courts are facing an onslaught of cases, and half the world's population is being asked to downsize. Homeowner Joan Talente of Lincoln Park says she's at a loss. Well, after my neighbors on either side just disappeared, I knocked down both walls and turned the studio into a three-bedroom. As a result, my husband and I decided to start a family that's been going pretty good. Now we've all got to move back into a studio. How is that fair? But of course, the laws of supply and demand were recently and quite capriciously upended by unelected superheroes who made the most important decision in the history of humanity just among their small circle. Now, Harley, I don't know how editorial standards have changed in the last five years, but it seems to me you're letting a little of your own opinion seep into your coverage. (sighs) Very well. On to the world food supply, which has run dangerously low, with half of all fields lying fallow, half of all livestock dying, and half of all agricultural workers having been turned to dust. Farming experts say it will take years to meet the world's food needs, and they expect massive starvation on most continents. The non-dustified are demanding to be fed first, but the formerly dusty claim they should have just stored up supplies over the last five years. The hostess company has used the opportunity to expound on the benefits of Twinkies and their nearly unlimited shelf life. A sad sight today is thousands remourned the passing of loved ones thought to have been dustified while flying. As you recall, at the moment of the snapture, roughly 1,500 or a quarter of all commercial flights crashed, killing everyone on board. Happily, half of those people didn't die as we know they woke up in cornfields having been reconstituted. A miracle, but half did die, a tragedy. And for their families, a permanent one. No backsies. The lost were remembered in multi-denominational church services throughout the country. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Oh, I'm sorry if that offended anyone. Delilah Grant was among the mourners. I thought he was dead. Then everyone came back to life. Except Frank. Frank was still dead. And not just Frank. Quite a number of people who are behind the wheel at the moment of Snapture were reconstituted to find themselves charged with vehicular homicide for killing passengers and pedestrians who weren't Snapchat. Thanks, Avengers. Freaking jerks. A similar fate befell the former occupants of the Chicago Sky Tower, a 68-story office building that was demolished in response to the giant population dip. Everyone who was dustified while working on floors 13 through 68, immediately plunged to their deaths upon reconstitution. Sad. Now here's Casey with sports. Well, the NBA just doubled in number. The players throwing competitive balance and salary caps into chaos. The Sacramento Kings, who are lucky to lose only a reserve guard and backup center at the Snapchat, have gone from juggernaut to joke. But in Golden State, a reconstituted Kevin Durant immediately began to complain about playing time now that Steph Curry and Klay Thompson have returned from dust. Early back to you. State legislators throughout the country have been re-examining bigamy laws for all the widows and widowers who have moved on and gotten remarried only to find their old spouses back. Child counselors also caution it will be difficult for the former only children who now find themselves as younger siblings to say nothing of the children who have just gotten over the passing of an older sibling, only to be reunited with that sibling, who is now their younger sibling. Jails and prisons faced with undercrowding immediately saw populations double. The Supreme Court will have to decide if those five years away count as time served. A tough position for the court, which now has 14 members, 
after its five snapture justices returned to serve out their lifetime appointments. In a related story, after a remodeling of the Clintonville facility for the criminally insane, a number of dangerous psychopaths were reconstituted outside the prison bars. They immediately escaped into already shaken local communities. Also, internet outages plague most urban centers. For the first time in five years, the air quality index in India rose to dangerous levels. And on the music scene, Kim Kardashian Carter has not commented on the return of Beyonce. In financial news, the markets doubled as twice as much demand pushed all the remaining publicly traded companies to new heights. Sadly, many Bitcoin investors who returned to their corporeal forms were disheartened to learn their investments had cratered. If the snapter taught us nothing else, it's the value of not touching your investments, especially Tesla, which benefited tremendously from the dustification of Elon Musk. The one laggard in the broader market recovery was the ash collection sector, also scrap metal, which had benefited from all those cars that suddenly killed so many passengers and pedestrians. And those people aren't coming back, are they, Scott? Oh, Harley, just be thankful for what you have instead of sad about what's missing. In fact, join me tonight as I host the last in my KPBS primetime series, So You've Been Desnaptured. It's one you and your family won't want to miss. This is the last in our primetime specials. Dick Wolf has been reconstituted, and he's taken up primetime once again. For Harley Reid, this is Scott Wilson with the Wilson Reid Report. Good night and snap to it. Thanos, we miss you more every day. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They combine on the Twitter account Manimal65MillionBC, which is tweeting from a time before mammals really evolved, thus limiting the shape-changing powers of beloved NBC protagonist Jonathan Chase. T.J. Raphael is Slate's senior producer. She maintains the Twitter account The Scarecrow and Mrs. King and Alex Jones. It's a mix of spying romance, hijinks, and irresponsible statements about estrogen and juice boxes. The gist. Follow us at Slate Gist or at Pesca Me, that's Pesca M-I, or at Small Wonder Singularity, which is the hypothetical future point of technological growth that has become irreversible, resulting in unfathomable changes to human civilization as played out in the adorable persona of Vicky the Robot. Oomperdepru dupru, and thanks for listening.